Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elves, kicking things off for us tonight. Landed in my inbox this very morning. Kelly Finnegan of Coal Mine Records with Heartbreak for Christmas. And I'm not the biggest Christmas music fan, but when it's a, a soul singer like Finnegan, I can get behind it. Uh, I'm going to play you another track from uh, Kelly Finnegan from his album, The Tales People Tell, which was released on Coal Mine earlier this year. I am reviewing my long list from the past year on which The Tales People Tell lands. And uh, working on my top 20, uh, Jared Kediak, station manager and host of And the Rest is Noise on Saturdays. And I will be doing our annual countdown show, our top 20 songs and our top 20 albums on December 31st, replaying on January 1st. 15th annual edition this year and uh so i am uh, in the process of re-listening to over 160 albums i'll be quite honest uh but kelly finnegan's tales people tell in the mix i'm going to play you a little something from i don't want to wait coming up after that i'm going to be talking to coco love alcorn who comes to the west end cultural center next tuesday and uh a little after that i'm going to be uh, playing an interview i did with don gilmore whose memoir to the river won the Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Last week, we spoke to Joan Thomas, who won the uh, the fiction category. Two Winnipeggers, or at least Don Gilmore, a former Winnipegger. So uh, congrats to both of them on their wins, and uh, stick around. Here is Kelly Fanningen with I Don't Want to Wait. Oh, lift me up on the 
All right. Well, coming to the West End Cultural Center next week, playing December 10th, bringing her new album, Rebirth, Coco Love Alcorn, who joins us from the road. How are you doing, Coco? I'm good. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing I'm doing great. It's uh, it's the weekend is imminent, so I'm excited for that, although it's about to get a little cold here. Uh, you've been on the road for a little while now. This is kind of the, the tail end of the tour. What's uh, what's your experience been like on, on uh, touring this record? It's actually been incredible. I uh, I tucked away in the studio making this one, and and uh, the tracks, not entirely, but a lot of these tracks sound big, but the subject matter on some of these tracks is quite vulnerable. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was actually kind of nervous to get out there and play them live because I didn't I didn't know them live yet, and. Uh, yeah, and then I started doing shows, and I find when I'm nervous about shows, it it always ends up working out, because you get there, and there's you, and there's people that want to be there, and there's music, and, and that combination just always works. And then I've been getting to know these songs live, and falling in love with them all over again. I fell in love with them in the studio, and I was nervous to meet them live, but we've been having amazing first date so <laughs> so the way you're describing it is like you've, you said getting to know them meeting them so do you have relationships with your songs yeah i, I don't know it's it's I, as i'm saying these words it's not exactly something of like that i have you know a, a well-formulated uh theory on but mm-hmm. it's something i've been i guess it's always been there and it's something i've just been putting into words recently with with these songs and this album there's you write a song and then you get in the studio and you try to figure out what it wants to be recorded. And then when you go sing it live, every time you sing it, it, it shape shifts a bit. It takes on the energy of the room and the people. And then when you talk to people at shows and, you know, they might say, Oh, this song connected with me because of this. And it's something you never even thought of that adds to the energy and the meaning of a song. So songs are always in evolution to me. When you when you get feedback from uh, an audience member or a listener about a song and they open up a, a, an avenue for that song that you hadn't considered, does that like it kind of accumulate when you're then performing the songs later on that you have like different sort of experiences to draw from or different ways of viewing it? Absolutely, like a hundred percent, and it it's really important for me because if I was focusing on singing cover songs I would have millions of songs great songs from the history of time to choose from but being that I tour singing almost all of my own songs plus random improvisations in the moment sometimes but anyway (laughs) focused on songs since I'm singing my own songs it's a much smaller group of songs that I have to draw upon for material it's it's just whatever mine (laughs) so so for the songs to evolve and take on new meaning keeps them keeps them connected to the moment, keeps them relevant, keeps them I don't know, yeah, something that I can really tap into and connect with. Is it in any way intimidating to kind of put a song out into the world and you have an idea of what it is and then you get feedback that is different from what you felt the story you were telling is? Like do you have a, like a preciousness with your songs that that's that's a difficult thing to face, or are you open to you know the fact that once you put it out into the world, 
a, a listener comes with their own set of baggage and, and perspectives on what they're listening to? Yeah, I, I mean, generally for me, that's that's a good thing and that's helpful. Like I might, I might be, uh, yeah, just this thing happened a couple of days ago. I was having a meeting with my manager and we were talking about whatever stuff. A, a mutual friend of ours came in the room and said, hey, I'm having a listening party tonight. I want to play a track off of the Rebirth record. Which song should I play? And my manager picked The Keeper. He said, oh, that's a great track. And it's the song that I've felt probably the most vulnerable and nervous about. Mm. There's certain things in there that make me go like, ah, can I really say this? But it connects with him. And then that gives me, you know, makes me realize that some people you want or need to hear that song and and I need to put my own stuff aside and sing it sometimes. <laughs> so then are are there songs that you'd prefer not to sing? Like like I mean obviously you chose to sing them at some point because you put them on record, but like are there are there ones where playing it out live is not necessarily what you'd prefer to do and and maybe it's just cuz of fan requests that you do end up ta- tackling those songs? Yeah, this is tricky stuff. It's it's nothing's black and white. I guess maybe maybe certain songs want to be presented in certain contexts. Like on the on the record, uh, there's a beautiful string arrangement on on the keeper. So maybe that the tenderness of that string arrangement is what's going to be that balance and that context for those words to be heard in the right way or mm. something somewhere in my head so if i'm at a live gig it's it's to, to and i don't have a string check section with me to achieve that right tenderness i have to be in the right frame of mind or put it between the right songs or be in the right setting or or something like that right i was listening to an interview you did uh with jan hall for folk roots radio talking about kind of trying to write spiritual songs without being religious and I'm curious if you can kind of uh, elaborate on like was that a, like a like a actual like concrete approach like I want to write these type of songs or did, was it you felt that you were writing these type of songs and and only in kind of like hindsight or in the midst of the process that you realized that's what you were doing? I think it was. I think it goes back a little deeper. I think. I think there is an opportunity for a great opportunity for connection through music. And whether you call it spirit connectedness or, I don't know, there's, <laughs> language is pretty wide. But uh, for me, the moments I feel the most connected to myself and the most connected to nature is, sorry, the most connected to myself and, and my spirit and the moment is my best connected moments have been through music, in nature, um, sometimes with certain friendships and relationships, those are the moments. And when I took a big break from music, there was about four or five years, it wasn't a full stop, but I was mostly pulled back and at home with my young daughter. Mm -hmm. That's what I really missed about music. Like, there were lots of aspects I missed about music, but when I really boiled it down, the thing I missed the most was that deep feeling of connection in a moment that can happen 
with an audience where all that energy is swirling around and music is the conduit for connection. So when I started writing for my last album, Wonderland, I wanted to zone in on that feeling as much as I could. And I've carried that forward with Rebirth, but in a bit more of a vulnerable way, I guess. So it's like opening yourself up for those experiences or, or for that connectedness and, and maybe you not necessarily closed yourself off from it by stepping away from the stage, but you know, it just, that avenue of openness was, was, was not available during that period. Um, I think there's maybe it's that, that thing I was, I was saying before about when, like different people gather different meanings from songs and then that energy gathers into the songs. So I can access it to a certain point myself with music, but when I collaborate with other people, when I'm singing in a room where there's lots of people in the audience or on stage or both, there's just more energy to, to tap into. Speaking of collaboration, uh, Corwin Fox recorded, mixed, and produced the record. Uh, as far as produ- producer credits, what kind of relationship was that and, and like, kind of involvement? It was amazing. <laughs> uh, he's been a friend for a long time, and we had always wanted to work together, and um, this, this was our time. And um, I still have my daughter at home. She's nine now, so... I didn't go for a big trip. What I did was I broke it up into five smaller trips. So over the course of about a year, I went out to Cumberland, B.C. five times, usually for about a week. And the the process was playful, curious. Um, he was always open to exploring. and And that's what we did. We kind of went on this, explorative path trying to discover the sound of the songs and how they wanted to feel and yeah it was really fun <laughs> you said uh, playful and, and and curious a lot of times those those attributes are you know generally considered like younger people like ch- childhood kind of uh personalities or, or or pursuits the album's called rebirth like did you kind of return to like a like a childlike approach to things or, or feel that you were tapping into something uh, along those lines? Huh. Uh, I hadn't thought of it exactly that way, but yeah, that, that sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, that, that rebirth concept, I mean, it's, it's not just a one-time thing. It's something that's always available to us. You know, we kind of, we work hard we move forward. Sometimes things in life knock us down. And then, you know, we have to find that way forward again. And uh, I think there are lots of avenues for, for moving forward again. There's finding inner strengths within yourself. There's tapping into support from your community, your friends and family. And, you know, the list goes on. But also being creative, and tapping into that part of yourself can finding that inspiration and being playful and kid-like going back to the, to the roots of it all. That that's a huge possibility for, for 
yeah, moving forward again. Well, uh, before I let you go, Coco, I want to get you to pick a track off the record that we can play for listeners. And if you have a reason why you're picking it or an anecdote about the song, we'd love to hear that. Um, I know we talked about The Keeper, but let's just go with the title track. Let's go with, with Rebirth. It was the first song I wrote for the album. I actually wrote it about four years ago when I was making the Wonderland record, but I wasn't, I wasn't ready to put that song on that record. And then uh, it became the first song of this album. I think when I wrote that song, I had gone through a really hard time and I didn't actually see my path forward. But the moment that I wrote that song, I believed that that path forward was there for me somewhere. And, uh, and that's where the song came from. And, um, and then I think maybe the Wonderland record was like part of that path for me. So I was ready to put that song on this next album. You <laughs> that were, makes any sense. You were reborn, but you were just a newborn at that point? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, uh, we will give that one a listen. Uh, December 10th at the West End Cultural Center. What's the best place for people to keep tabs on you online, Coco? Oh, uh, there's my website, cocolavalcorn.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And, yeah, the best way is to find my, my newsletter. I keep threatening to myself to leave Facebook, but <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. Sure enough. Yeah, I heard you talk about the dopamine hit of that uh with uh, Jan on, on that interview. Uh, th- thanks for taking some time out of your day and, and safe travels in the interim, Coco. Thank you, Michael.
To the River recently won the Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. Don Gilmore joins us by phone. Don, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, you've written uh, about suicide in, in other formats in the past, and I'm curious if the, the experiences you had writing that led to this, or was this book kind of always in the offing? Uh, no, you know, the book wasn't always in the offing. I had written about, I had written a magazine piece, and um, it was probably three years after my brother's death, and um, and then I thought, well, that'll get it out of my system. And then, you know, a few years later, it was still the idea was still rattling around, and so I thought, oh, well, I'll do a longer piece, and then uh, and I did it for a newspaper, and I thought, well, that's now I'm done with it. And um, but it still wasn't, you know, I, it still nagged me, I guess. And I thought, well, if I do a book, then I'll be able to work as far through this as I can and you know if i'm not at peace at that point then i probably never will be right so i mean this is this is part memoir but also as you call it suicidology uh the decision to kind of put the two together uh was that like an early on development or did that come about kind of as, as you were yourself wrestling with your brother's death and 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 this is like you looking for answers in some sense beyond just like what happened within your family. Well, what happened was in the uh, in the time that elapsed after my brother's death, um, 
there was, uh, I think it was, now it's four people that I knew, four old friends, you know, people I'd lost touch with, but um, still people I'd known, uh, all of the men who had taken their lives as well. And so I was looking, you know, into the sociological literature um, and see if there was any sort of hints about this. And I was surprised to find that we were now in a high-risk category, that is to say middle-aged men. And um, at one point, it was the lowest-risk category. The, the ages 40 to 60 were sort of the comfort zone. And there was you're at risk when you're younger and you're at risk when you're older. But middle age was this sort of safe haven. And now it's, in fact, uh, a, you know, it's among the highest. And in, in the States, it actually is the highest. And so that was a surprise to see that. So when you're faced with a surprise like that, right, that you your assumptions are challenged or what you know about, you know, kind of that the teen years and the late late twilight of a, a person's life generally having been kind of the peak points for suicide, that it's the era in which you sit now. What goes through your head? Well, you know, I was looking at the in, in reading the literature, they they come up with a number of theories as to why this is happening now. And I mean, some of it has to do with the baby boomers and they're saying, you know, the baby boomers um, didn't have to develop the same defense mechanisms as earlier generations. You know, the, there was no war, there was no depression that we had to grapple with. And, and partly that our expectations were so high, you know, we had been born in this sort of wonderful moment and we anticipated it would only get better and that we would change the world for the better. And, you know, that didn't really happen. Um, so I, I think that's part of it is just um, that our expectations were so high and that, you know, one sociologist pointed out that we had spent, you know, you know, a decade or more kind of tearing down institutions so that, you know, church going uh, was on the decline, divorce rates were on the rise, people no longer stayed with the same corporation for their entire working career. And you know, all this was good in some ways. It was a sort of like triumph of the individual, I guess. And But um, it also meant there was less to fall back on when you were, if you found yourself in trouble. And so um, this sense of isolation pops up in, in, all, in most of the sort of pieces about this. You get this sense of how isolated middle-aged men are now. Right. One, one of the topics you touch on uh, towards the end of the book is, is around optimism. Um, and, and about illusion. And so that, you know, uh, I think it's a Pew Research uh, assessment of quality of life about that, you know, when optimism declined and, and you know, when it vanishes, uh, you see that, like, gloomy forecast for, for that age group. And then you do quote uh, Gustave Le Bon, the psychologist, about, you know, men can easily do without the truth, but no one is strong enough to do without illusion. And, and oftentimes... Uh, optimism is an illusion, right? That it's it's something we kind of tell ourselves to to get through uh, maybe a harder reality than than we want to face. And is this kind of like the the curtains have fallen, or like you know the the veils have lifted? Yeah, I think to some extent that's true. That and you know we do have this optimism, often a kind of false optimism that that you know most of us invest in to propel ourselves forward. You know that. We'll, you know, we'll pay off the mortgage faster than we think and, you know, we'll win the lottery or, you know, whatever. Um, but I think there's a, you know, there's a part of us that knows some of this is unrealistic. And so 
so I think that those um, the illusions I think for some people they just got to a point where they could no longer sustain them there was there was um, uh, certainly in, in the case of friends of mine um, I know they just got to sort of the end of a road where they realized that nothing would get better in fact that there was no set of circumstances that could alight on them and make their lives better and they just made that decision to, to end it Pushing up against that, though, that you do talk about, you know, circumstances where people who have dealt with, you know, depression or, or hardship, that it's when things start to go good for them that uh, you see uh, su- suicides, that there's this weird kind of wh- why now-ism to it. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting phenomenon. And, you know, one of the things that suicidologists think is that... Um, that often people are so depressed that they can't actually manage the task of suicide. And so um, as they're starting to feel better and they're more competent and better able to kind of organize and to deal with the world, that's when they're able to, to in fact, plan their own death. And you see this sort of spike in their, um, in their mood. You know, you see it over and over again in the, in the literature where, you know, people come out of a depression, they seem sort of buoyant and, one of the reasons for that buoyancy, it's, it's you know, theorized, is that that's the point they've decided to end their lives. And so they're, in fact, kind of relaxed and, you know, uh, happier than they have been in a while, which is a, uh, a sad situation. But there you are. And, and in some sense, it, it, you, I don't think you necessarily come to the conclusion that that's the way it was with your brother, but that, you know, he was about to have this stable job and, and things were somewhat on an even keel for someone who had had a tumultuous time up to that point? Yeah, I think he was in that category. And, um, uh, you know, on the uh, on the face of it, you would think, you know, he's got this good job as the manager of a bookstore in Whitehorse and things are looking up as far as jobs go. You know, this is a good one. But he, because he had been a musician his whole life and uh, for long stretches supported himself as a musician, uh, I think the idea of sort of entering, you know, what he would probably still call the straight world um, was something he just didn't want. He'd had this incredible freedom and he was doing something he loved. And um, and now he was going to kind of enter uh, the world that he had rebelled against basically and I, he just it was a world that that held no interest for him in chronicling his life and, and and you know working in your your memories of him i'm curious like because there's like sort of episodic things like you kind of pull back to some memories of youth in talking to his friends you get a sense of you know who he was when you were less in touch and, and he lived up north Discerning what to include or, or, you know, how to weave this story, what, w- what was that experience like? Well, it was a, di- uh, it, you know, it's a difficult story to tell because just, uh, you know, as a writer, you're thinking this isn't a subject that everyone wants to read about, obviously. And so I, I wanted to make, I wanted to create a narrative that would be as interesting as possible and, and that wouldn't be, you know, freighted with this, this sort of, um, the, the dire subject that, that I'm dealing with. So I often did go back into time and go back to our childhood, which, you know, in many ways was idyllic. And, um, you know, we grew up in um, Wildwood Park and, you know, right on the Red River, and it was all this 
incredible kind of wild land to play in and um it you know you it couldn't have been a better place for childhood and so i i go back to that um partly to alleviate i think the heaviness of the subject and um and also partly to to see him you know in that moment when he was you know happy and carefree and one of the you know i guess main themes of the book is to try and figure out that arc because you know i think of this boy you know running around wildwood park as a kid and this wonderful childhood and then how did that boy end up standing uh you know at the edge of the river mhm and you do wind up back at wildwood park at at the end of this book with you, with your children and and was that like a concrete decision to to bring it back to that place uh, to, to sort of summate the story? Is that, was that a purposeful thing? Yeah, it was. I did want to kind of come full circle. And, you know, one of the things about coming back there, because uh, my sister still lives there, and so I'm often, you know, back, or I'm back at least on a regular basis. And, um, you know, you walk around the park, and it's, interesting with these random memories that come back you'll pass some house and you'll remember the name of the person there and you'll remember playing in you know monopoly in their basement or um the the detail of specific memories that come flooding back when you walk through your old neighborhood uh is quite uh interesting leaning on that then when it when it comes to writing this memoir and thinking back to you know yours and david's childhood like did you find that going and, and walking around the neighborhood to help prompt some of those memories or like how did you kind of pull pull those back from the the recess of your mind when you were writing well partly it was in those you know physical visits when i was in the neighborhood and walking around but part of it is the physical act of writing i find helps bring back memories in a way that they don't come back if i'm just sort of sitting here staring at the wall and thinking about things but i start to write about something that happened when we were, you know, 10 years old. And that sort of prompts all these other memories, and they, they kind of um, they come back, and, and, and not in any kind of coherent order, They're just but this sort of random series of events and images that come back from, you know, elementary school or, you know, playing hockey at the rink in Wildwood. And um, so that... That, for me, that's always been the case. Um, you know, for other parts of the book, when I was in Whitehorse, for example, I would keep extremely detailed notes when I was up there, and so I had those. But for the childhood, it was really just kind of going back and um, and sometimes talking to my sister, you know, about things, and this would um, prompt other memories. Yeah, I guess there's kind of like three distinct elements to the story. There's like those those childhood memories that you are kind of having to pull from 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 the recesses there is your your trip up north that you you like you said it's clearly that you were you know kind of journaling what you were doing uh, each day and, and then there's the the research on on suicide and like how how did you kind of have to weave these together i have to imagine some of this came out through sort of like the editing process and and interweaving these things yeah, it was a challenge to uh, weave them in a way that made for a coherent narrative. And I, you know, at times, especially with the, dealing with the research, um, some of which is quite interesting, but um, I thought, you know, I don't want huge chunks of that 
I mean, I didn't want sort of 80 pages in a row of the research, so I thought I need to find a, um, you know, a narrative system that'll break this up, but in a in a way that you know seems to flow um, through it all in a, in a way that makes sense, but doesn't spend too much time kind of in any one place. Your family members, your sister, your parents uh, are are within the book and and share share with you and, and are parts of some of these stories did you kind of seek out their permission to to talk about this stuff within the book or was this something you kind of shared with them afterwards saying here's here's what i've done i'd like you to know about it well that's an interesting point because you know when you're writing about family or, or friends um it is a delicate thing and so i phoned my mother and said you know i've got this the manuscript is finished at this point. I said, if you want to read it beforehand, you're welcome to. And um, uh, she said, no, you you know, just write whatever you have to, she said. Um, she's always been very supportive and very, I think, o- aware of what, you know, the writer needs to do. And I'm, you know, there's probably parts that she's not thrilled with, but she um, was extremely supportive uh, both before and after. And... Um, and I think understands, as you know, few parents would, um, what you need in order to write a book like that. So I didn't, I did offer it, but um, and my sister, who's also a writer, um, didn't read it till afterwards either. You have a, a really beautiful, like, kind of entry about your mother, about her recalibrating her expectations uh, around David, and you know, you uh, talk about an experience where he'd gotten busted stealing a stop sign or at least pulling it out of the ground uh and you say that you know the rewards of parenthood are, are many but the grief is bottomless as she you know asks where did i go wrong as, as a parent did did you talk to her about that passage afterwards or did she approach you about that passage uh no i i, I haven't but um um yeah it is one of those things i mean it was the kind of thing where um, you never actually hear anyone say it, but then she did, in fact, say, you know, where did we go wrong? It's, uh, and I think, um, you know, that's, you know, now that I'm a parent, you know, um, you understand so much more about how, you know, how worried you are throughout the entire process and thinking that this one incident is just going to take them off in another path and they're going to end up in prison or, you know, God knows what. Um, and so uh, I, I have, a, I think, a much greater awareness of what they would have gone through. Right. People think of like in terms of like inflection points that a certain like crossroads happens. But a, a lot of times, you know, a life is based on like the accumulation of small, small choices and, and little elements. And I think you maybe get that perspective the longer you're a parent. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think that's, that's absolutely true. That And that's sort of what his situation was with a lot of these decisions that have been made along the way, none of them entirely consequential at the time, but they did sort of add up and present a bill. And I think he found himself in a situation where he just had fewer options than he would have liked. And, you know, had he, you know, say, taken my parents' advice and gone to university and studied music because he had this gift and he could have developed in it in a in a different way perhaps and um uh so i think that's true that we do you know and sometimes it's uh you know odd little things that we didn't 
did do or didn't do. And those things, um, you know, can be much more important kind of decades later. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, you do talk about kind of the, the relationship between suicide and, and artistic people that, you know, the higher preponderance amongst those populations. And then also the sort of like genetic predispositions and you, and you recount, you know, a, a weird similarity between someone you'd read about, I think his name's Arthur, and like having like specific food allergies and really weird parallels to David's experience as a child. That's right. Yeah. It was eerie to come across that because, you know, they were so similar in temperament and habit. And you'd think those are very specific and idiosyncratic habits. You know, um, David, um, you know, for a while would only eat things like, like roast beef with butter on it and noodles. And there's like about eight things that he ate. And they were almost the same as what this guy Arthur would eat. And so, um, and this, you know, the circumstance with the older brother and, um, yeah, so much of it seemed um, so parallel, and you, you know, you can't help but wonder about these all, these patterns, which is one of the things that you know a lot of sociologists do is look for mm-hmm. sort of patterns in suicidal behavior. Right. You obviously, you know, write about the difficulty for for researchers because the successful suicides, you can't interview those subjects afterwards. Obviously, you can uh, look at you know letters they've left behind and things like that, but it doesn't necessarily give the whole picture uh, no and i think you know th- it is a very difficult field to study and um one of the things you see are these contradictions where you know for example um in ireland when when the economy suddenly took off and it became the celtic tiger you know when it was about 15 years ago maybe now and um and you know everyone was suddenly wealthier than they or you know so many people were much wealthier and better off than they had been um, and the suicide rate actually went up in Ireland. And, you know, one of the theories among suicidologists was, you know, those people who were left behind no longer had the economy to blame. Like you could say, oh, you know, everyone's, uh, I can't get ahead because uh, of the way things are here. And then suddenly other people are getting ahead and you're not. And so um, there was a, you know, a high, the, the rate spiked. And then in Calgary, during, you know, there was an oil boom in the 70s and then kind of early 80s, it just completely collapsed and um, a bit like it is now, in fact. And um, But it was during the collapse that the suicide rate went up. So during the boom, actually everyone, um, the rates went way down and then um, suddenly the suicide hotline calls doubled in, in the space of 12 months. Right. There, there's these kind of uniform or at least like kind of collective responses to these things whether it's a positive or, or negative response and you, and you actually talk about you know the Chicago Cubs and these like long-suffering fans that that, that they're united by that and, and not weighed down by it in some sense that's right yeah yeah it's an interesting phenomena with uh, with sports teams and I think there were I mean some of these um, uh, you know I, I mean people are looking the the kind of quantitative approach to suicide um, I think does take you down some rabbit holes. And I, I don't know that all these sort of collected data that show certain clusters, I don't know how significant some of those are. Um, and, and certainly the kind of preeminent suicidologist that I talked to had decided to sort of switch his field of study from the sort of quantitative model, which showed, you know, indigenous youth had higher rates and dentists had higher rates and things like that, um, and was looking more 
qualitative models that would analyze the uh, notes left behind uh, by suicides and try and see, you know, can we divine what these people are thinking? If we look at enough of these notes, will we get a better sense of what's going on in these heads? Commonality. You do talk to a researcher who, I think you quote him as saying, like, you know, basically everything has been done and now we're kind of repeating it in in some sense. Yeah, and um, which is, you know, unfortunate. I think one of the fears I think I have is that, um, you know, he'd mentioned because, um, uh, then you know, on the Internet, no one goes past like the first two pages on the screen, basically. So you're not going back to, you know, and, and stuff that's 50 years old isn't up there anyway. You'd have to go to the book. And so there is this sort of we're kind of recycling the last 20 years of knowledge. But um, one of my fears is, you know, because there's a lot more uh, scientific uh, study on this, neurological study, that the idea of isolating a suicide gene and, um, and bringing some sort of, you know, pharmaceutical uh, approach to the problem is a bit worrisome because, um, you know, they certainly they've, tried that in other areas and and it hasn't always been a grand success right you were talking earlier about the 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 memories of your childhood and you know in the writing of them or or you know sitting and re- recalling them like were you you know with things coming to mind and you were just kind of jotting down like point form like you know halloween or you know tobogganing or something like that and then kind of building on that afterwards when you were kind of i don't want to say brainstorming but you know sifting through your memories um, you know, usually it was kind of in the course of the actual writing. So I'd be at a point where I, you know, want to go back and I'd think about, you know, the hockey team and I'd remember, you know, their coach used to call us by derivatives, feminine derivatives or name and we lost. So, you know, I would be Donna and Johnny would be Johanna and um, things like that. And, and that would kind of lead to, you know, something else and you'd kind of end up, um and then in the course of that, I would find something in there that I could use, and I would actually write it down, like on the page in the draft, as opposed to kind of jotting it down. And every once in a while, I, you know, it would be one of those things where you wake up in the night and you know roll over, and you have something that comes to you in the middle of the night, and you write it down because it's a memory that um, you know you'll forget when you wake up in the morning. Right. I, I bring it up and go back to because you at one point you're when you're when you're up uh, after David's death and you canoe on the river, you then recall a, a summer camp experience of, of canoeing and being you know left alone on an island uh, overnight or over two nights. I think the course of it is. But the the detail that struck me was you talk about, you know, the person who had to carry the kitchen uh the backpack with the kitchen gear versus like the other people and that, you know, you might start off with 90 pounds, but as you eat over the course of this like two week canoe trip, the, the weight lessens. And it really struck me as some sort of parallel to, you know, maybe that's you with the kitchen pack and your brother is the person who has the 40, the 40 pounds sustained and it never lessens. Oh, that's an interesting, I hadn't actually thought of that, but you're right. It's true. I, um, you know, having chosen the food pack, it, the first week was a struggle, but then the second week was, you know, much less of one. And by the end, of course, I had nothing. And those guys that were, 
had chosen the middle weight were still kind of dealing with it. And I think that's probably true. He, you know, he, he never did lessen his burden. It's something that increased as he got to middle age. And, um, and I think he was, you know, uh, my mother had said that he's someone who crammed 75 years of living into 48 years. And I think that that's true. He was one of those boomers who really took the idea of youth to heart. And it became, uh, you know, a kind of permanent condition. And then, but at some point, you know, we, we have to let go of that idea. Right. And it, it struck me as a really like firm analogy of someone like carrying depression and that like, you know, they just never, that, that, that weight is the same weight they carry all the time. Uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you had written about suicide in, in other in newspapers and magazines and hoped that that had kind of like put it to bed, but it hadn't. With this book, do you feel that like that's, you're at that place now? Well, I think, you know, I, I feel, I guess, a satisfaction that I've explored that landscape as far as I can. And so, you know, I don't, I, you know, peace would be probably too strong a word. Um, um, but I, I, I think I understand it as much as I will. And um, so, I, yeah, I guess to some degree, I, I feel like I've, um, I, I guess I am to some degree at, at peace with it. Right. Well, the book is To the River, Losing My Brother, out uh, via Penguin Random House. Uh, Don, thanks very much for taking some time to uh, to talk about the book, and congratulations on the, the Governor General's Literary Award as well. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, and you just heard something from one of my favorite labels, Brownswood Recordings. That's uh, Giles Peterson's brainchild. Uh, they just put out a, a little compilation that is uh, Pay What You Can on Bandcamp. So if you head over to Brownswood's Bandcamp page, uh, it's the best of Brownswood's recording 2019. Damier Osina, Joe Armand Jones, amongst others that uh, are on the roster and on that comp, uh, and uh, also on my uh, year-end long list. As mentioned, I will be doing my top 20 countdown with station manager Jared McKediak on December 31st. And uh, I should let you know that next week is my last regular, thank God it's free range, of the year. And I'll be back in January uh, on the 20th. Cole, Cole's notes will be going extra long that night. And then uh, there's a, a special broadcast uh, on the 27th as, as well. But uh, before, so I just played Zara McFarlane and Dennis Bovell's East of the River Nile from that Brownswood comp. Before that, new single from Winnipeg's own Lev Snow, a track called Dim Light. Got a new single from Jeff Parker on International Anthem next. It's called Max Brown Part One. And then a little something from Canadian electronic act Bison Bison. Stick around here on 101.5 UMFM. Thank you. 
Montreal's Cave Boy. That's a new single called I Wonder. Before that, Garza. Uh, that's G-A-R-Z-A. One half of Thievery Corporation with a new single called Where the Moon Hides. We started that set off with Jeff Parker and Bison Bison. We're going to close things off with Beshkin, who dropped a new single this week called Holding Me. Features the vocal talents of Halima. And uh, we will leave it over to After 8 Radio coming up next. Thanks for tuning in to Thank God It's Free Range.
down 